Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the Podcast. Today we're continuing our series. We're on show number 286 with the 11 skills toddlers use before words emerge. Today we're going to talk about um, but purposely vocalizing. And when I describe this to parents, after they look at me, when I say vocalizes purposefully, and I realized, gosh, that's really wordy, that's too jargony for parents. I say this is when we teach your kid how to be noisy. And we all know noise happens. (laughs) We have to hear something coming from that little mouth before we can realistically expect to hear words. But listen, I'm jumping ahead of myself as usual. Let's talk about some announcements before we really get going. Is it autism is still in the pre-sale period? Today is Friday the 13th. Well, I just realized that. Friday, May 13th. Let's hope you're not so superstitious about that or anything. Uh, but let's, uh, let me just say the pre-sale period is going to continue for that course. Is it autism for the next couple of days? That, if you've already ordered that, and thank you so much to all the people that have. I was looking at the list yesterday and just blown away uh, by how well that course is doing, not only in the United States but outside the United States too. And here's why, because I think people are at such, gosh, almost a desperate level when you have a kid that you know has red flags for autism, that you know, you know, based on your Internet searches, based on what you've read, based on what folks have said about him, based just on your personal experiences, when you know, gosh, this might be what's going on with my child, yet I have nobody here to help me. I I feel pretty alone in this process. So that's why I think this course is doing so well internationally (laughs) because so many area. So again, I wanted to mention it to you. Part one deals with just taking the official diagnostic criteria, which is from the DSM-5, from the American Psychological Association. So it, it, it is the official list of what children or the characteristics or signs and symptoms we see children exhibit with autism, and we walk through that list. We look at a lot of therapy clips so that you can see examples. Sometimes we'll say things like self-stimulatory behaviors and parents don't really know what we're talking about. And again, let me just say, this course is not, it's for professionals. It's for therapists. So it's just like any other continuing education course that you would go to, uh, and except I'm, and I'm teaching it just specifically for DVD. So it hasn't been videoed at an event where you're going to have background noise and sound problems and all that stuff. It's me looking in the camera, <laughs> teaching the course, but same content that I would if it were a live presentation. So uh, anyway, back to part one. You can see examples of some of the signs and symptoms of autism. And again, this is it's not specifically for parents, but some parents have ordered it, particularly when they don't have access to to quality therapy services or consistent access, or they're waiting in countries outside the United States. You know, parents will tell me sometimes they wait six months to a year before they can see anybody beyond a healthcare visitor or uh, you know a nurse or uh, a pediatrician. So getting access to quality diagnostic information 
is not as easy in some parts of the country in the United States. So again, I think that's why the course is doing so well. I wanted to mention that. Part one is about diagnostics. And it's about, I believe, three and a half hours long. So really solid information. It's not just a little, little, you know, brief introduction. It is detailed. The second part of the course, which has just blossomed <laughs> in final edits, I thought it would be about four hours. Really, it's going to be five and a half to six hours uh, with with how it's turning out in final edits and it uh, or how it's turned out. And so, fantastic clips. I, I went back and added even more therapy clips, especially for preschoolers, because so many times autism isn't identified until a child. It's closer to three. And so even thinking about that as someone who, who has spent most of my career specializing in children birth to three, you know, now that I'm in private practice these last four or five years, I do see a lot of three- and four-year-olds. And so I went back and added a lot of additional clips that even if you took the course live that you didn't get to see in the fall. And so we really, really walk through a lot of that. And if you're a person who primarily uses coaching, then boy, this course is for you uh, because it, we talk a lot about how to get parents involved and a lot of about how to walk a parent through strategies. And, and I have one particular family that's just been so fantastic to work with that I've seen this little boy every week. So he's a little guy that's local for me. And he, uh, his mom has just been fantastic with uh, her willingness to participate. And uh, you're going to see kind of his, I don't want to say before and after videos because it's not after yet. <laughs> We're still working, but certainly uh, progress. And so you'll see his early sessions and then walk through you have, after he's had some time to improve. And so I've, I've just, so enjoyed this course. And that's one of the things that I always say, everything that I'm working on at the time is my very favorite thing I've ever done. Uh, so this is an autism course, no exception. So tons of good information. The pre-sale period will continue through the next couple of days, but it's supposed to be cut off. The first day we start shipping that course, pre-sale is over. And there will never, ever, 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 ever be another discount like we're offering right now because the course, like I said before, has turned out to be longer than we originally anticipated. So get it while you can. All right. Second announcement that I want to make is I'm getting a lot of invitations to speak at state speech and hearing conventions. And if you want to uh, ask me or invite me to come to your state for your state convention, have your uh, program director or whoever is responsible for lining up your speakers email me uh, to laura at teachmetotalk.com, and I'll be happy to entertain that request. I also wanted to talk about an event that's coming up in Canada in September. I've never spoken in Canada before, so I'm really excited about it. Gosh, I don't have that information. It's right on the right um, so that I can easily locate it, but it's in Toronto. So even if you're in the eastern United States, that would be a good opportunity for you. And I will get that information linked on my website soon, hopefully today. So check that out if you are in Ontario and want to come to that in September. I would love, love, love to have you. We're doing the Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers uh, course for a big practice there, and they're inviting other people to participate. So I'd love to see you there. All right. Um, I think that's all for announcements. Let's get going with today's show. Today we are talking about skill number eight. And remember, this has been a long series. I hope you've hung in here with me. 
with the 11 skills toddlers use before words emerge. And today is getting really, really fun because we're talking about how to help kids learn how to use their voices. Now, sometimes I'll talk to a parent about this and they'll say, Laura, I really now, you seem like you're kind of uh, going overboard here because I'll, all I want them to be able to do is talk. And they don't really realize how that sounds until they listen to the words come out of their own mouths. And I say, you know, for your child, we are not hearing he, he or she vocalize enough. Or he's not noisy enough yet to talk. And let me just say, sometimes that's a surprise to parents because they may not have ever been around other children. And so, again, their child is normal to them. That's everybody's normal. And so they don't realize how little noise or how little um, their child vocalizes. And it's just a precursor to words. Your child is not going to go from, or a child is not going to go from being, you know, so super, super, super quiet to producing intelligible words all within a day. Now, I can think of a couple of kids in my entire career that it has been such a shock that they have been really, really super quiet, and then all of a sudden, within a session, or mom will call me or text me and say, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. He just said blah, blah, you know, whatever the word was. But, guys, that's really, really rare. Most of the time, we will see a distinct increase in the level of vocalizations that a child begins to make. Still may take weeks or even months before we get him ready to really use words. And think about this. This is kind of common sense when you look at it in that children, even late talkers or, or language-delayed or language-disordered kids, really will... Well, let's just say, let's talk about delays. Because with delays, remember now, that's just a problem with time. So kids are really doing this, acquiring the same skills. It's just a slower pace than what we would want. And so when we think about that for a kid who's a late talker with, with just kind of a straight speech or language delay, if we compare that to normal speech language development, babies vocalize or babble, if you want to think about it like that, for quite a while, for months and months before we start to really hear those vocalizations sound more like words. So if you are parenting or working with a child who is just super, super quiet, you have to know that there's going to be a period in there where you just got to focus on the noise and forget about words. So we have to have them have that time or that time to let their little systems adjust to learning how to make noise on purpose and that they learn that they are controlling that. Because here's what's gone on for a lot of children. Everything that they have done has been vocally, has been reflexive. And what I mean by reflexive is they haven't used their voices on purpose. So... They have cried with a voice, but again, that's directed by their emotions. It's not really directed by, you know, they've decided I'm going to open my mouth and cry now. You know, it's not, it's not volitional yet, meaning that they haven't, again, had a little thought that originated like let me make some noise here. It's, it's, it's an offshoot of something else that's happened. But everything that they've done with their little mouths has been involuntary. You know, they've eaten they drink, they breathe, (laughs) 
they and again they may use their voice when they cry or yawn, you know, like ah, but some some babies don't do that or make a noise like that or just but again any little involuntary noise like that. And they for for some toddlers and preschoolers who are who are nonverbal. That thing that we have to teach them, and again, you can't teach it in the context of words because that's too hard. We have to start at an easier level. So we have to think about helping them learn how to control their voices. And again, as children are older, if they're still not vocalizing, let, let's talk about some of those reasons why we may not hear vocalizations from a child. And again, if you're a parent, I don't want you to freak out too much when I'm talking about this because I haven't seen your child and can't see your child, so I don't know what's going on specifically with your child. I'm just giving some ideas for you to consider, for you to be able to read about, specifically for you to get more information about from the therapist who's working with your child. And let me just say, too, sometimes I forget to emphasize this because I feel like it's just kind of inherent and that anybody listening would know this. But if you have a kid who's a significant, who has a significant delay, so he's over two and he's not using any words, please get him or her into therapy today. Please find a speech-language pathologist to work with him. And again, if you are in a situation where that's been difficult, you live in a place where you have limited options available to you, or especially if you're listening outside the United States and you, you've you know, you're almost wanting to scream back at me now and say, I don't have anybody. You know, I get that, and that's not what I'm really talking about. I'm talking about parents who, for whatever reason, just decide, hey, I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm not going to pursue this yet. I'm going to see how it goes. Maybe I can treat this at home. And, you know, we all kind of tend to do that. You know, I would joke with my children, unless they were really, really ill uh, when they were little, we kind of had a three-day rule with we're not going to go to the doctor until I know that, you know, this is not going to pass in a couple of days. And some people, and, and when it was minor, you know, colds or little tummy bugs or things like that, and some people kind of treat developmental delays like that. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm going to wait. He's two and he's not talking, but we have a history of, like, talking in our family or I know other boys who haven't been talking on their second birthday. I'm just not going to worry about it. And then, voila, you open your eyes and what feels like five minutes later, and, gosh, they're turning three and still not talking either. Guys, that, please, 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 if you're a parent in that situation, kids don't outgrow that kind of issue. They're, you're not going to have a two-year-old or a three-year-old go to bed one night and then the next day wake up talking in full sentences. It, it, it just doesn't happen like that. So let me just emphasize the importance of having your child evaluated um, and, and participating in an assessment with a qualified professional so that you can figure out what's going. And be, even beyond the assessment, guys, intervention is what's important. So as a parent, if you're listening and you've been on the fence about that, if you live in the United States, and your child is under three, has not yet had their third birthday, Google your state name plus, you know, so if you live in Kentucky like I do, you would Google Kentucky and then plus the phrase uh, early intervention or state program for early intervention or just come up with some kind of variation like that or, or state program speech therapy. You are entitled to an evaluation, and some states have some, quirky rules now where you have to kind of get through a questionnaire on the phone with somebody to make sure that they really are delayed, kind of oh, stuff that's happened in my state over the last few years. But anyway, my point is if you have a kid who's not talking who's over two, they really, really, really need to be seen by 
discipline. And you can do a lot of this at home because parents make a big difference. But you need another set of eyes on your child just to, one, reassure you this is just a, a late talking, kind of a case of a late bloomer. Seeing parents late, I'll see a three-year-old who's never, ever, ever laid eyes on another kind of professional other than the pediatrician, and he's not talking at all, and you just kind of want to go, what happened? You know, and again, I'm not trying to slam any parent or, or be condescending or anything like that. I'm just saying don't wait. Early intervention is huge, and it makes a big difference in the eventual outcome of your child. The earlier we treat these kinds of issues, the better. All right, so off that soapbox, <laughs> I just want to be sure if you're listening that I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraging you to uh, pursue speech therapy services for children who are not communicating, particularly if they've had that second birthday and there's still no words. You need to have somebody else look at your child and help you figure out what to do. All right, so let's get back to what we're talking about today and for the things that you can do at home. And I started to talk about the potential reasons why a child may not be vocalizing. And again, don't confuse vocalizing with words. Certainly if a child is using words or things that sound word-like, that's vocalizing. But I'm also talking about children who may not cry with a voice or you barely hear them ever use their little voice. And sometimes, again, parents miss this because their child hasn't been very loud, and they don't even really know that their child isn't very loud. They're, they, they're thankful <laughs> on some level. The most extreme case of this that I've ever seen was a little girl who moved in next door to me many years ago. That, that family has since moved on. But they, uh, this little girl was in foster care because she was so neglected as an infant that she had learned over time that nobody responded to her vocalization. So it wasn't that she couldn't use a voice because once she got in therapy, we got that going pretty quickly. But when she cried, her foster parents, her foster mother said to me one day, right at the beginning of, said, Laura, you know, what you were talking about with her being so quiet, you're exactly right. Because this week I looked over at her and she was really crying. She was really upset. But I didn't know it because she did not make any noise. And so some of you are listening to this and saying, well, that's not my kid because he screams all the time. He's loud when he's unhappy. That's a good thing <laughs> because children have to be able to use their voices, and there's a small percentage of children who won't be there yet. So let's talk about some of these reasons why. The, it could be that there's a problem with muscle tone. So that, and, and you'll already probably know this because your child has been later to acquire gross motor milestones. And in real language, what's that mean? He's a late walker. He was a late crawler. He didn't roll over on time. So he's had a lot of problems or delays learning how to use his little body. And uh, frankly, when you see that throughout a kid's body, his little legs and arms and trunk or his core, and by that I mean his tummy muscles, his stomach, when a kid's muscle tone is low, he's going to have a harder time learning how to talk, and it could go all the way back to that core strength piece, meaning that getting the, lung, getting the air from his lungs, his little muscles aren't as developed, and to push that airflow out from his lungs over his cords that vibrate, that's the physiological process that happens when we all talk. And it happens in all of us. 
from one minute old until we die. I mean, that's the process. And so sometimes there are real physical issues that have limited that. So kids like Down syndrome, kids who have Down syndrome, who have that characteristically low muscle tone, they're floppier, they're uh, flexible, that's what some parents kind of think about it as. They just feel a little mushier. You'll, but you'll already have known that. Someone has probably, or or cerebral palsy, that would be another diagnosis. Some of those kids can be low, have low muscle tone and some kids can have high muscle tone. And those are the kids that, um, when you look at them, it's kind of the opposite. Their little legs are, sometimes parents will say, oh, I knew he was really strong because he's standing up on day one. But really it's that that muscle tone is so high that his legs were pretty hyperextended all the time. So, again, there's some differences here. But muscle tone issues can play a big a part in a child being a late talker, particularly if you're not hearing strong vocalizations or strong crying or if he has to get really, really, really worked up and just be mad, mad, mad before you would hear a vocalization. That's a kid who's not talking because that low muscle tone has really impacted his ability to voice or to create sound as that air flows over his vocal cords. So again, we don't want to be a lot more technical than that. And if you're a therapist and you're thinking, well, you know, I don't even know that I've talked to parents about it in that that technical of a way, which of course this is a very simplistic explanation, but you should because I've seen so many families that their children, you know, aren't walking even at three, but nobody's really talked about that that connection with low muscle tone or or severely significantly different muscle tone and nobody's ever correlated that with this is why your child isn't talking. So we have to have those discussions that help parents connect the dots. They have to really understand that when a child has physical limitations related to muscle tone and again you know sometimes a parent will say well how can low muscle tone in his arms and his legs affect his talking, guys, it's through their whole body. So we have to explain that to parents. And again, I'm not meaning to be, you know, overly overly simplistic or or say that parents don't make the connection, but just my personal experience has taught me over and over and over again that we can't assume parents understand all of that. So we have to walk them through that and have to really, really talk about that. And sometimes parents will understand it at an intellectual level, but they've never really put it together in, oh, my gosh, you're telling me she might not ever talk. Or you're telling me that my child may, you know, be nonverbal for until he's four or five. And sometimes we have to have those hard discussions. And again, it's hard, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We can't really look in, at a child on, you know, within five minutes and say, well, he's not going to talk until he's four point four four years, point four months or whatever. You're not going to be able to do that, but you can talk with parents about, gosh, this is going to be a long-term goal. This is going to be a longer process than we would want. So muscle time is certainly an issue for some kids. And again, when you know that you have a kid who's got uh, really, really uh, reduced, meaning his little muscles around his tummy because, you know, muscle tone is around his whole body, you've got to do some things that really target that. Now, PT and OT actually are going to be better at getting that going than a speech person would be because they work on bodies. <laughs> that's what they do, and so that's a prerequisite. So, again, having your child in additional therapy services is, is and, and as a 
speech pathologist or developmental person who focuses on communication skills, you've got to really talk about how those other other disciplines, other other professionals and therapists are really, really going to be an important part in helping a child with those issues learn how to talk because we have to do some things to get their little bodies going and get their bodies ready to talk. So that's what I wanted to mention there. Let's also briefly talk about apraxia. Apraxia is a neurological diagnosis, meaning that there's a difference in a child's brain. And again, it's not something that, you know, you're not going to be able to walk into your doctor's office and say, hey, I want you to do an X-ray or a CAT scan or an MRI or whatever test, you know, you think the doctor should order. And let's see if my child has apraxia. <laughs> it doesn't really work like that. We do know that there are neurological changes or differences in the brain and where they're located and how they impact various functions of our body. And certainly there have been children that I have seen on my caseload whose physicians or neuro neurologists have said, you know, because of whatever their overall diagnosis is, yes, this child is likely to have motor planning issues and they will sometimes talk about apraxia and, and go ahead and give that diagnosis. But apraxia, apraxis uh, means movement. And so... Sometimes you'll hear apraxia with A as the prefix there, which means without. So that would be without movement. And here, this could be, you know, any part of the body, but we're specifically talking about for speech today. So oral motor or mouth, okay? So, and rarely, you know, when you see a kid where apraxia, that's what we call it, but mostly in the United States, a lot of places overseas, especially the UK, they prefer the term dyspraxia. And dys just means discoordination or that it's uh, problematic, but it's not quite the same severity level as apraxia or that A, the prefix. So just a little discussion there. But apraxia, it, the, the speech condition here, the speech diagnosis, is the child has difficulty planning or sending or even executing speech movement. So even if he knows what he wants to say, he's, and I describe it, again, it's a really simplistic explanation, but it's one that parents understand. I describe it as the process of kind of that short circuit. Somehow the word just does not make it to his little mouth. <laughs> there are issues, and again, it's a brain issue, not necessarily a mouth issue. So that's why a lot of kids with apraxia, or most of them, are actually the true definition of apraxia, would um, B, that a child doesn't have obvious muscle musculature involvement. So we're not seeing a lot of obvious signs of low muscle tone or high muscle tone with the mouth, those kinds of things. So for a true, clean definition of apraxia, that, that's what we would see. And again, not every kid who's a late talker will have either one of those problems. Sometimes it's the language-based thing, meaning or a cognitive issue, meaning that it doesn't have anything to do with their physical bodies at all. But we have to consider, especially when children aren't vocalizing very much at all, when there's little sound coming out of that little mouth, we need to look at some potential diagnoses. Okay, so let's move beyond that and talk about the most important part today. What do we do? What can we do as parents and speech-language pathologists when this is not happening yet, regardless of what 
the problem is. And again, if you have a diagnosis, that is very helpful and always the best case scenario when we know why a child isn't talking because then we can really, really tailor our interventions or what we offer, our therapy. And if you're a parent, you may be thinking, well, we're not doing therapy, but you're still going to teach me stuff to do at home, right? Yes, absolutely. And the things that we'll talk about, again, are going to be simpler ideas that you can try. And certainly if you're a speech-language pathologist, you know how to take strategies for motor planning and for kids with low muscle tone and tweak it so that you can make it work for toddlers. But today we're really going to talk about things that aren't quite as diagnostically related. So we're just going to start with the, the most general ideas and go from there. And let me just say, even if you suspect that a kid has apraxia or you know, gosh, we have low muscle tone and he's not vocalizing yet, don't discount the importance of these things that we're going to talk about today either because, one, these are the strategies that your parents will be able to do at home and they're not so technical that you kind of lose a family with, you want me to do what? You know, we're not talking about all that. We're talking about things that can be easily incorporated into a family's routine. It's not something that would be super, super, super hard for a parent to incorporate. So what do we do when we have a kid that's not very noisy? And again, by not very noisy, I mean that they only cry with a voice when they're really, really worked up. You know, they don't make much noise at all. We don't hear a ton of any kind of squealing or screaming. And actually, let me just move on and say, this is how we know that a kid is becoming noisier, that he is moving toward talking. When all of a sudden we start to kind of hear a difference in how loud he is or how much noise he makes. So we'll hear a kid that starts to do a high-pitched squeal. And again, in typically, typically developing babies, we can start to hear that between four and six months where they really start the little, ah! and they're playing with their voices. They're learning, excuse me, I can control my voice here. I can make it louder. I can make it softer. There's a whole lot of practicing going on. And remember, I've already said it once, but I'm going to say it again and probably two or three more times before this hour is over. We have to look for that increase in noise. And if we're not seeing that, we've got to facilitate it. We have to get some things going to make that happen. All right, so let's talk about what we can do. When I'm in this situation, I have really learned over time to stop with all the words, <laughs> with modeling words when this is our focus. And, again, let me just say, now kids have to hear words to learn how to talk. And remember last week's show about receptive language, that's so important. And so when we're thinking about receptive language, you know, they have to hear that word and they have to link meaning and all the things that we talked about in last week's show. So I'm not saying that you never talk to the kid using words, and that's unrealistic anyway because we all talk all day long, every day. Saying that, I'm just saying when we're specifically focusing on helping him become more noisy, drop the words and go more towards sounds and other vocalizations. So play sounds. And for some therapists, you would, when I suggest this to them, you would think that I'm asking them to, you know, cut off a limb or to, you know, do something else that, that they just kind of balk a little bit because they, you know, think about language. And goodness knows I am a language, language, language person. I mean, my whole philosophical approach is deeply rooted 
in helping kids learn to understand and use words as a functional way to communicate, but there are some children that aren't talking yet because of the speech part or because of the vocalization part. And so we do have to consider those kids. Now, every single kid is not going to be this way, thankfully. Thankfully. <laughs> and so for a lot of you who are listening who are therapists, this is not applicable to every single child who's not talking. It's just the kids who aren't noisy, just the kids who aren't babbling, just the kids who aren't vocalizing. And, again, that's an important distinction for parents to make, too. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, that's not really the problem with my child, fantastic, because it, is, it won't be relevant for every single late talker. But for some kids, it is. So that's why we want to talk about it. And again, this may be a kid who has more of a speech issue, meaning the actual sounds that he produces or how well we understand him or how he puts sounds together. Some kids have more of a speech issue than a language issue. And with those kids, they're understanding words. They're following directions. You know, you listened to last week's show and you just kind of scratched your head and said, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me at all. Uh, actually, you know, now that I'm saying that, I think, was last week's show receptive language? I don't remember. But whatever the show was about receptive language, you listened to that and you thought, well, this doesn't apply to me at all because my child understands all this. Fantastic. But this week may be more relevant for you because your kid, it's not that he doesn't get language. He knows what words mean, and he follows all kinds of requests that you ask him to do. It's just that he doesn't make any noise. So this is the kid who, again, is going to have more speech problems than language problems. Here's the kicker. Some kids really do have both. It's not that they just have one or the other. Not only do they not really understand what words mean yet, they don't consistently link meaning, but they also aren't able to voluntarily copy any sounds that you make. Or even, actually this is even a step before that, they don't make much noise on their own at all. And again, remember, this is not going to apply to everybody, every late talker, just a small subset. So, we're doing, working with a kid like this with them, we've got to set the stage so that they do, so that it's more likely that they begin to make some noise and begin to vocalize. And again, it's so hard as a therapist when you're sitting there and you're looking at this sweet little boy or girl and you're thinking, if I could just somehow put my hand on your throat or pull those little words out, you know, what am I going to do? It can be really, really frustrating, especially when you think, man, there's more language in here than I'm ever going to be able to hear because at the root of this, there's probably some kind of speech issue going on here, some kind of, you know, again, it could be muscle time related like we've already talked about or some kind of motor planning problem. So we've got to get them noisy. And we have to, again, start by thinking about noise rather than words. So we've already said things like squealing, things like laughing. For some kids, you just kind of have to get them to even realize that they can produce a voice at all, even on something simple like, uh, like we've already said, screaming or laughing, those kinds of things, but even just an extended kind of vowel. So just like an ah or an ooh, or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Sometimes if you'll put more emotion behind it so that it does sound like a squeal or a scream, you're going to be better off. Let me just say your biggest thing here is don't put any pressure. So when we're talking about these gross motor activities that facilitate 
vocalizations, you're not going to say to a child, hey, listen, we're about to run for 10 minutes straight so that I can get your little body regulated and revved up and get that inhalation, exhalation really, really going here. And guess what? You need to vocalize while you're doing it. You're not going to be able to do that. But you've got to be able to model that and at the same time not apply any pressure. And I have seen well-meaning parents try to say things like, you know, just say it or or um, you get my point. You get what I'm trying to say here. They, they, they make it, there's so much pressure. It's almost like it's confrontational, meaning that you're, you're almost making it impossible for that child to be able to let go and vocalize because you put so much pressure on him. And the truth is, if he could do it <laughs> just by somebody saying, hey, say this, he wouldn't even be in therapy because his parents have already tried that, all right? So try to think about it like that with reducing the pressure and with just concentrating on I'm just going to do everything I can here to, as I've already described, set the stage so that he can be noisier. So I mentioned gross motor activity. So in common language, what does that mean? You're going to move a lot. So it could mean you're jumping on the trampoline. And so while you're out there jumping on the trampoline with your child or you don't have a trampoline, jump on the bed. Or you think, I'm not going to jump on the bed with him. Him jump on the bed. You hold his little hands, though, because you need to be there participating. And instead of, say, counting, like a lot of parents will count, you know, to 10 or to 20 as their kid jumps and then let him fall, Instead of doing that, just vocalize, just make noise. So you might say something like, ah, 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 ah. If you've, tried, if you've heard your child make a sound or use a sound that sounds like a little word, kind of in babbling or just kind of that random um, vocalizing that, that babies do, if you think, oh, my gosh, two days ago I heard him say a D or a D sound, say that. So while he's jumping, say da 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 do 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 da do do anything like that. And again, I'm modeling that just like I would do it. And if you're a parent, you may be listening to this and think this lady has lost her mind. <laughs> that sounds a little ridiculous. Or if you're a therapist who, again, you're thinking, oh, I'm really going to model that. I really want to say jump. And again, if you're a speech pathologist, I bet you don't feel that way because we all think about syllables and vocalizations and what the repertoire kid already has and how we can take that and shape that and make that more purposeful. But let's just say you're new to this you or, or let's say you are an educator. So you're a developmental therapist or EI specialist and you're listening. Start with those, those sounds that you've already heard a kid make. Even if you think, well, gosh, I think I just heard that one time, and I'm not even really sure I can call that a D. It doesn't matter. Just take something as close to what you think he's already vocalized. And if you think, Laura, I haven't heard anything, don't worry about it. Just pick something. And, again, it could, if you're a parent, just think about it being a vowel sound to remind you. <laughs> there are many, many, many different variations of vowel sounds, but you can always go with A-E-I-O-U, so, you know, A with an you know, those long vowel sounds, A, 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 E, E, E. You can do something like that. Or, again, the best thing that I like to do is take what I've already heard a kid sort of sound like and then model that while we're doing that gross motor activity. And as a parent, again, remember, try not to use as many words. So we always talk to our kids. We're always saying, oh, you like to jump. Let's jump, jump, jump. 
Or, oh, I like, I like the way you're jumping. You're having so much fun. Or, like I said before, sometimes we lapse into counting and things like that. And those are fantastic because those are verbal routines. But at the same time, for so, so many kids, for some kids, we have to make it even simpler or even easier. So stick with something like that single syllable that we talked about. You know, if you've kind of heard a kid when he's crying and he sort of has an M sound, so he's sort of almost said ma 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 or you sort of think you've heard that go with that while while you're jumping or while you're running uh when i run with kids i just scream you know ah! or you know oh, anything and again don't worry about how you sound or how crazy it looks or sounds just get something going but because for our kids who've been super, super quiet, that's what they're missing, and that's where we need to start. Even swinging can be like that. And, of course, we're always going to say, wee, you know, when we're pushing a kid swinging, and that's fine. But try other babbles, too, just to see what you can elicit there. Um, so swinging, jumping, running, uh, one I like to do is bouncing a kid on my lap. And so if he is pretty social and will stay with me like that, um, bouncing him, even if I'm sitting on the floor, I'll just put my knees, my legs out, stretch them out in front of me and get a kid on my lap and just bounce them and then, you know, start, ah, 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 or whatever he likes. You could also do that if you were swinging a kid. You could swing a kid in a blanket like that, or you could even swing him, um, you know, like we were talking about before in the swing, but bouncing, you could even do bouncing if you were sitting in a chair or on a couch with the kid, and we'll hear that a lot. Um, uh, you know, a trick that I've done before is um, the little kind of Indian sound, and again, I don't mean to be, you know, not politically correct, but just a little sound, and so if a kid sometimes is crying but not too upset or they're kind of screaming but they're not that upset you would never do it in the middle of a full-on tantrum but if you can just kind of catch it when a kid is about to vocalize um just move your hand you know back and forth on his little mouth so just you know kind of pat his little mouth there and see if you know as he's doing a, that makes that sound really novel and really interesting. And, again, it really increases a child's own perception or his own realization, oh, my gosh, that sounded different, and that's from my little body. You know, and, and again, you're not going to see that revelation happen with every single kid, but for some kids you can kind of see them almost fond in a surprised way, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. So those are some tricks to try. Those are things that I like a lot. Other times, really, the end, so we've talked about movement. So that that's a good one. That's, that's where I start. And so let me just say this, too, especially in the United States where we're coming into summer and you can be outside with kids, any kind of physical activity where you're just running and having a good time, you're chasing them, you're letting them just be out in the yard, uh, gross motor activities where you do big body movements are just the, the best no-pressure way to elicit that kind of uh, vocalization where, again, there's not as much pressure. You're not maybe right in front of the kid's face. You know, it's not as, like I said before, confrontational. So great, great way. So start with gross motor things and see what you can get from there. The second thing would be altering your location, meaning that you are going to go somewhere or do something with 
location so that you can increase the acoustic properties of how a child can hear his own voice. So in plain English, <laughs> you're going to try to set up a situation garage. If I have been in a home and, you know, mom tells me or somehow I've just discovered that the garage is empty and we can go out there and play, that's a good place because it's a lot louder. If you see a, a kid at a preschool program where they have a gym or like it's a faith-based program so it's at a church, sometimes they'll have big gyms where you can take a kid. And, again, because it's empty, it's very, very echoey. So that's a good thing to do. And, again, pair your gross motor movement with that so that you are running. If they have balls, you would just throw balls or play with balloons or a beach ball or anything like that where you can get a lot of movement out of that kid. And so try to do that. And remember, as you are playing, don't focus so much on the language with this kid. Uh, and worrying about words, just model sounds. And sometimes I'll tell myself, okay, I've got to use 10 different sounds here, even if they're sound effecty kinds of things. And, you know, by that I mean, um, and we'll talk about this in a later show. I think that's coming up next week where we talk about imitation and we were going to shape these sounds. But even things like, um, animal sounds or car noises. So if we were in, say, a gym in a, in a, a church-based school and they had a lot of little trikes or uh, even little push toys, I would make a lot of car sounds while we're doing that. So, you know, I, we're pushing it and I'm going, those kinds of sounds. And, again, that's a little bit beyond what we're talking about today. Today we're just talking about straight vocalizations. Um and so sometimes those little sound effects you think are easier for kids, sometimes they're harder. So you'll just have to judge. But I, this is my example. I'll tell myself, Laura, you cannot say a real word until you have done 10 different vocalizations that are not words, you know, and that's what keeps me focused. That's what keeps me focused on I'm going to model these play sounds and these easier, earlier vocalizations rather than something like a real word. You could babble here if you're comfortable with that, with the big da 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 or ba 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 as you're playing. It's fantastic if you feel comfortable doing that. That's a great way to kind of get that going. And, again, you can pair it with what you've heard a child try to say. But getting yourself in a new environment that's echoey sometimes is a trick that or a strategy that's kind of worked. Let me talk about something that, I learned from uh, Pamela Marshall's books. She talks about vocal contagion, and the concept of this is related here. Uh, but what she really means is that everybody who's with the child, you kind of create crowd noise. And so everybody's singing or making noise or vocalizing or laughing or screaming or, you know, whatever you want to call it there. And that really freeze a child <laughs> to kind of let loose vocally and start to make a lot of noise. And a lot of kids need that. And sometimes if you'll interview a preschool teacher about a child who's a late talker, who's really quiet, they'll say, you know, I don't hear her say anything at all until we get to music. And all the other kids are singing, and I've heard her sort of try to sing. And You know, you can't make out any of the words, but you can hear her, you know, hum, or you can hear her say something like, ah, 
you know, and I know that she's trying. So, again, that crowd noise, vocal contagion can work. So how could you do this at home? If a family has other children, you're just going to want everybody in there and try to do something, again, that's pretty physical so that everybody's making noise and having a good time and really letting loose. And sometimes we'll see a young child who's not very noisy suddenly start to make a lot of noise in that situation. And you, here's another thing that's happening there. You're taking the focus off them talking. And so instead of you sitting right in front of them saying, you know, something like, here's the car, you have to say car, you have to tell me car, you can't have it, say car or sign car, you know, that's so much pressure. And so we don't hear as much noise or uh, vocalizing during that time because you just about made it impossible for them. So setting aside these kinds of times, and especially if you're a therapist, talking with moms and dads about how they can set this up and how they can encourage their child just to be noisy, not with talking yet, we're not to words yet, but just getting that noise going. Let's move on and finish up with a couple of more ideas. Toys that amplify sound. So you can go to Dollar Tree and get those little, or any kind of dollar store, and get those little dollar microphones. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're not real electronic toys, <laughs> but they amplify sound, so they make things louder. It sounds like you're talking into a microphone, and so many toddlers like these kinds of things. And if you have a kid that's been real mouthy, you know, you'll just have to let him do his licking and drooling and all of that first. So get a couple, one for you and one for the kid, and just play. And, again, don't think about doing a lot of words. Just do sounds and just mess around with different combinations of vowels and consonants. And don't even stick to that. Do some screaming into the microphone or some whispering, anything that will sound novel enough or fun enough for that kid to want to try. Babbling, again, you could do a... You know, a na 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 na. If you've heard a kid kind of use a sound like that, I've had really good luck though with just screaming into the mic. And even if you want to make it a syllable and just do something like da da, I've had good luck with that because kids think that is funny for whatever reason. And again, make yourself as goofy as you can be while you're doing it to sort of take the pressure off and have it be about the whole activity, not just what's coming out of his mouth. But try those kinds of things. Uh, other things that can work with this even would be something simple like a paper towel roll or a toilet paper roll. And, again, don't don't go, you know, I'm going to say it one more time, don't go for words here, but just vocalizations. And it, you can stick with just an ah or an oh or, you know, ooh, any kind of vowel sound you can do. Or, again, make it more like babbling with a da-da-da-da-da-da. You can, you know, almost make it a little song like that, like it's your horn. That would be fun. If you don't have that available, go into the kitchen and get a big pot. <laughs> or if it's around Halloween time when you're listening to this, uh, a, a jack-o'-lantern, so a pumpkin, you know, those plastic containers that uh, you use in the United States for putting Halloween candy in. And actually all kinds of Holiday themes now, uh, Walmart and places like that will sell those little containers even around Valentine's Day and around oh, Easter for Easter buckets, Easter baskets. So get any kind of a little container like that, even a bucket, even a plastic Rubbermaid bowl may work for this. But all you're doing with this is just leaning right down, at, you know, 
having the child sit on the floor with you or if you're sitting at the table or he's in the high chair and you're in the chair, just have the bucket or the bowl or the pot right between you and just lean down into it, you know, and again, try to get his attention. Make your face look really, really fun right before you do it. So you'll say something, you know, if her, if the kid's name is Emily, this is how I would do it. I would say, Emily, Emily, look. And then I would just lean my head down into that bowl <laughs> and try to say some kind of sound similar to what I've heard her say before. If she's a big crier and all you've heard her say is, you know, or, or vocalize is crying, I might even fake cry into it like a little, you know, <laughs> anything like that. And, again, don't worry about sounding, worry about sounding silly. Don't worry about sounding ridiculous because sometimes that's when you're going to get your best responses. So, so that's a good trick, too, and I've used that a lot, especially when I've, we've had another language activity going and we've used the bucket for something else. And then I just I stop and maybe kind of in between activities try to do something like that or in between turns. And sometimes again, because it's not been your focus, you're taking that pressure off the child, and he or she is more likely to try to vocalize at that point than before. Um, one of my favorite ways to get this kind of thing going that's a little bit more structured is to tie in one of these early kinds of vocalizing activities with a game or something that a kid really likes. So one of my favorite tricks for this is the game Row, Row Your Boat, so that if a kid will sit on my lap, if we're if he's that social and that far along, and we're doing Row, Row Your Boat, and the second verse of Row, Row Your Boat, it has a scream at the end. It's Row, Row, Row Your Boat Gently Down the Stream. If you see an alligator, close your eyes and scream. And, of course, you know, when you're doing um, the row-row part, you're rowing the kid, you're taking his little hands. By that, I mean he's on your lap and you're leaning back and then, you know, leaning forward so that you're both simulating that rowing motion. And then you're singing, you know, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. If you see an alligator, so point to your eye for alligator or crocodile or whatever animal you want to use here. I use my arms like I'm making the big alligator mouth. And then close your eyes. So cover your eyes with your hands and sing. Close your eyes and scream. And then uncover your eyes with a big ah at the end of that. I've had such good luck with that with children. And, again, I haven't done it like right off the bat. Some kids you may scare. I've got a funny video of my little friend Clayton when I scared him to death the first time I did this song with him. But it's a good one, and it's part of the routine. It's part of the song. It's unexpected. It's silly. It's funny, and sometimes you'll get that purposeful scream. And, again, you may know that a kid can scream, but why does this work? It's because he's doing it on purpose. He is deciding, I can say something. I can make my mouth and my body make this sound. So that's why that might work really, really well. And I bet you can think of some other little games or routines that your kid already likes or a child you're seeing already likes where you can insert some of these little screams or squeals or even just a big fake <laughs> kind of laugh where you can insert that and it'll be such a surprise to them that after you do it several times, 
they will try to do it too. Or listen, you may have to model it 15 times in a row and not get anything in one session and then try next in a row and then that third or fourth week they kind of catch on and they get comfortable enough where they try that too or where they don't do it at all with you. And then mom goes home and she does it for a couple of days and then her child joins in too. So remember there may be a period of practice. So don't stop just because you don't get a response that first time or two you try. And therapists know this, but gosh, sometimes moms and dads don't realize the amount of repetition that a child needs before he or she will be able to start to join in and do some of this purposeful vocalization. So keep at it. Don't get discouraged. And let's just end this show with what I said at the beginning uh, so that I can be sure that you're understanding it. Kids have to first vocalize on their own for quite a while several weeks minimally, more realistically it would be several months. And again, that's what happens in typically developing babies. They have to practice with their voices and use their little voices for quite a while before we start to hear real words. And so that's what our expectation should be for light talkers. Now, thankfully, sometimes we can speed this process up because they do already have that underlying skill of being able to make noise. But for some kids that you they won't. And so you've got to give them that time to practice and really learn. I'm going to learn how to use my voice here. And again, that's not something that they're really thinking. You know, we don't have a 27-month-old who lays in his crib and says, today's the day that I'm planning to blow my mom away and start to use my voice. That doesn't happen, but you, they do have to have enough exposure in it so that that does become a realistic goal. Rarely, rarely, if ever, is a kid going to pop out a real word when you have not heard him practicing being noisy first. One thing that I forgot to mention, too, uh, when we were talking about vocal contagion is sometimes parents have told me the only time their kid really vocalizes like this is when they're in the car and they're playing music. And so maybe mom likes the song that's on and so she starts singing out loud. Try that. That's something you can do too. And I think the combination of moving in the car, so they're already kind of feeling that vibration, plus hearing mom sing, and you may turn up the radio a little, little louder too so it's a little bit more novel. Now don't overstimulate a kid or over film a kid, but it's certainly something worth And I've had parents report good luck with that too. I forgot to mention that before. All right, so that's the end of today's show. I've given you some tips for helping a child learn how to vocalize on purpose. And again, by that, we're not to words yet, guys. We're still talking about just sounds. We're still talking about at that pre-word level. So I hope that you get some good luck with these results. Uh, And I'd love to hear any tricks that you have that you want to share, you can always email that uh, to me at laura at teachmetalk.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back here same time, same place next week. Bye.